You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Dr. Michael Gazaniga is a professor of psychology and the director for the SAGE Center of the Study of the Mind at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's a director of the Summer Institute in Cognitive Neuroscience and president of the Cognitive Neuroscience Institute. His books include Human, The Science Behind What Makes Your Brain Unique, The Ethical Brain, The Science of Our Moral Dilemmas, The Mind's Past and Who's in Charge, Free Will and the Science of the Brain, His new book is Tales from Both Sides of the Brain, A Life in Neuroscience. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Kasanika. Thank you. Thank you. In this book, we like to think of science normally as something that is a universal law like that which is sought by scientists. But it's not really that way, is it? Science is is derived from uh, the human mind, of course, and it one quickly realizes it's a social process. It involves all kinds of people when you're working on a scientific question. You're discussing the issue with students, with mentors, with non-scientists, and out of that discourse uh, becomes, uh, you crystallize your own idea, and the uniqueness of science is then you go test your idea. You don't just come up with an idea and say, well, there's an idea, and go on to the next one. If you're a scientist, you test its uh, validity and in that testing, uh, the, the process goes forward in an exciting way. As a scientist, you started out as an undergraduate student. Here you are, you're coming out of uh, one of America's top universities. You have a choice between being a scientist or being a doctor, and that wasn't an easy choice for you to make, was it? It was not an easy choice. I came from a medical family. My, my father uh, was a physician, surgeon, and he wanted that for his, his children. He f- thought it was the best way to spend one's life. But I spent a, uh, I spent a summer at uh, Caltech uh, between my junior and senior year and discovered basic research. Uh, and I never looked back. It, it was just intoxicating to me. And so I went and told my father that, uh, you know what, I want to go to graduate school and get a PhD and, and not an MD. And uh, he he looked at me and remarked, uh, why would you want to be a PhD when you can hire one? <laughs> so so uh, he smiled and laughed and, uh, and then completely supported it. So it, it, was, a, it was a good decision for me and uh, it, it was the great, greatest time of my life. Well, talk about the greatest time of your life. You were actually at the Animal House. Well, yeah, well that, I'm not sure that was the greatest time of my life. <laughs> but it was a, it, yeah, but yeah, it was a, the crazy time of an undergraduate in college, and turned out that uh, the fraternity I was in at Dartmouth uh, became notorious for its behavior, and uh, uh, and it, you know at the time it seemed natural, but it it, it was a sort of silly behavior. And I, as I like to say, I did learn something from it, which is there's got to be more to life than this. <laughs> so, so one moved on to uh, serious pursuits. So, Well, when you went to Caltech, you found yourself in a, 
an amazing environment. Amazing. The people who would walk past your uh, hall, your door in the hallway are scientific legends of the 21st century. Absolutely. A and at the time, how much did you sense that? And talk a little bit about how that made you feel as a guy who's an undergraduate still, or graduate student. Graduate student at the time, yeah, yeah there, yeah. You know, that was the great part. You got, you, you were allowed into the inner sanctum of Caltech in a way, and it didn't matter whether you were the Nobel laureate or a lowly graduate student. It's what do you got? What, you know, speak up. What, is there something on your mind? Let's take a look at it. And so it was very common uh, to be walking the hallways and have one of these famous scientists walk by, Linus Pauling, Richard Feynman, and they stop and they say something and they ask you about your research. And, and it, it was just this incredible, incredible environment. And it still is, I think, one of the top scientific institutions in the world. But it, it, was, it, it was small. It's not a huge place like University of California at Berkeley, say. But it was intense, and there was this attitude of whatever you do, just think about it as much as you can, but then go do something. Don't just sit there. And, and that was one aspect of it that I found very important. And the other thing that they uh, con convinced you uh, of is to question whether the question you're asking is important. And because in science, you can do a gazillion experiments. And uh, the question is, is that, yeah, but is the answer to that really crucial in developing the next stage of what our knowledge is and whatever the field it is? So those, that aura, Caltech had that aura, and uh, to be part of it was just fantastic. Well, one of the things I think that's really interesting is the way you, your vision of yourself is, you say you're not good with numbers and yeah. you're not very yeah. patient, yeah. yet those are the very things that make you a great scientist, and I yeah. think that's so interesting. Well, the, the, uh, so, you know, the work I did was trying to figure out literally uh, human behavior as it might have been altered in patients who had had their uh, hemispheres uh, separated in order to control epilepsy. So this, this means it's, you had to think on your feet and try to see how the patient was solving a problem that you had planned or you had thought might go one way but they might be doing it another and you and, and so it was a set of skills that i had and to do that kind of thing you don't need to be particularly advanced in calculus you know it's just right in front of you and that's one of the things that uh, i tried to bring out in the book uh, by adding these videos is you know i can describe it till the cows come home but I was able to provide videos of the actual patients because I took them for 50 years. And, uh, and the reader can see, oh, that, that's what he's talking about. Oh, wow, look at that. Talk about developing, using uh, nascent technology. I mean, this you were using at the time cutting-edge technology, 16-millimeter film. <laughs> you had to teach yourself, go down to this camera store and buy it and yeah. find somebody who would work it. Yeah, oh yeah, it was uh, it was an incredible time. Uh, uh, Bolex 16-millimeter and uh, double sprocket so there was no sound on the film. And But anyway, we got it to work to take the pictures. In the first few years, it was silent movies, basically. And uh, uh, But then, uh, I after a couple of years, uh, I realized that there's this one setup scene we should have a, somebody knew, knew what they were doing, because I was doing it, I was doing it, I set the camera up, 
I'd get a remote control motors to run it, and I'd run around and do the experiment. <laughs> and so finally I said, you know, there's this one shot that we should really get done well. So a friend at the time was a, a guy named uh, Baron Walmut. And Baron was a photographer, and he knew how to do all this stuff. And I said, uh, Baron, would you come down, take these pictures while I test this patient doing this thing? He said, sure. And it becomes the emblematic left brain, right brain, little film snippet uh, that's in the book. Uh, and then Baron went on to be the founder of Rolling Stones magazine. So <laughs> we did none of, none of it. We were just kids, you know, doing this stuff, and uh, that's how it played out. So. Well, it's such an interesting use of the technology in both time frames. On one hand, you have, you're using the film technology back in the 60s to right. record the stuff. And here we are in the 21st century. You're able to embed the videos in an electronic version of the book. That's and amazing. it's an powerful reading experience. But to read it about making the movies and see the movies that were being made, it's more than just a video of what's in the book. It's seeing the book itself come to life. Yeah, I, I uh, this is all, all new. It's happening, of course, it's been happening for the last few years, but the publishers haven't uh, fully adopted it. And, um, and certainly most authors do not have a video plan for their book. Uh, <laughs> but this was very natural because I had the videos. I didn't have to go make videos to, to do this. I had all these videos. So I, I finally we worked out a way to incorporate it into the book, and I think it's the way it's going to occur in the years ahead. It'll be a total media experience when you buy a book. Uh, I agree, and this book is a, is a really a powerful, speaks powerfully to that. Now, uh, let's ratchet back to uh, young Dr. Gazaniga making, uh, he's looking at split brains, and the first place you look for, look at is rats. Uh, uh, rabbits. Rat uh, it was rabbits for mm -hmm. me. Uh, this is where uh, uh, the, the first experiment I thought uh, of was to see if we could put a half of a brain to sleep and then wake it up. Mm -hmm. So we, the, the, and, and in doing that, could something one half brain learned uh, uh, then be transmitted to the sleeping brain after the sleeping brain woke up. Uh, we were going to learn something about the neural codes if, if we could do this. And <laughs> so, so I developed this uh, rabbit uh, model, and I, would I figured out how to anesthetize half the brain, and uh, then I would hook electrodes up to the brain to measure the EEG to see if, in fact, half the brain was asleep. And at Caltech, the, uh, it was crowded for space because it was so busy. So I did this in the hallway. And uh, <laughs> really? I had the EG machine there and the rabbit and the thing. And the, the pins are squiggling back and forth in those old EG machines. And the paper's shooting out. And I'm just there totally involved. And Linus Pauling walks by. And he looks at, looks at this thing and asks me what I'm doing. And I tell him. And he says, you know. You ought to just hook those electrodes up to a bowl of jelly and shake it and see if you get the same response. <laughs> and he walked on. And I, I knew I was, and this was before I'd actually started graduate school. It was my junior year there. And, and I knew I was, I was in it now. You know, everything had to be tested. <laughs> when you started working with the human subjects, you write that the conventional wisdom suggested that nothing would happen. Right. And what this made me think was that the words conventional and wisdom really might not belong together. Yeah, yeah. Well, the so the, when I arrived at Caltech, 
uh, Sperry, my, my famous mentor and, and just incredible neuroscientist, uh, he and his uh, students had developed the split brain preparation in animals and cats and monkeys and showed this incredible thing that you operated on these animals, you disconnected the two hemispheres. And if you taught one hemisphere something, the other one didn't know anything about it. And that was astonishing. Mm -hmm. you know? And so I said, well, could that be true for humans? Well, the problem was that uh, there, were two, there were two issues. One is that if you're not born with this structure that the surgeons cut, uh, there doesn't seem to be any big effect. And it's like, well, you know, then how can you make these claims? Maybe the humans are different. And then the second big thing was in Rochester, uh, New York, uh, 30, 40 years earlier, they had operated on patients uh, in an effort in trying to control their epilepsy. And they tested them supposedly in the way we were going to test them. And they didn't find anything. And so the notion was, well, maybe the human brain just organized differently. It's not going to show this big effect. And so that was the, the setting. And so when we we made the first observation and bam, there was the disconnection effect that, that we all know about now. It was astonishing. It was stunning. And we all knew it. And then we spent 50 years studying it, you know, so. So how old were you when you were standing there and first seeing that happen? I was 21, maybe My just going on 22. My God. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. That must have been an astonishing moment. Take us back to that time. It, it, it was astonishing, and I, and I talk about it. it, uh, it it's w when you're dealing with neurologic patients in all kinds of different neurologic settings, and you're involved in something that actually uh, disturbs, or not disturbs, but makes an observation on someone else's consciousness, it's very... Uh, riveting and it's and like mind reading it's it's it you you know something about what they're doing that they don't know because you know what's what's happening and it's you feel very respectful of it because you don't want to invade in any way their privacy and so the the relationships you build with patients over the years is, is crucial and and the trust that occurs between two of you because of this sort of, un and everybody, everybody has, has come and tested the patient, he instantly gets it, that, that you, you just are very respectful of this relationship, even though rather dramatic things are going in front of your eyes, going on in front of your eyes. So it, it's, uh, it's quite an experience, actually. And, and that's one of the things I think that you do so well is to create, in this book, it's it's very novelistic in that you create a variety of characters and give us these huge character arcs mm -hmm. that are, are the the lives of people you've known for you know 50 years as scientists as as subjects and I, I'd like you to just talk a little bit as a scientist turning yourself into a writer and I think in this book we see that the writing process and the creative process of writing itself is itself a form of science and that as you're mm -hmm. we're writing this book it's some it's something of both an experiment and the results of an experiment in one piece mm -hmm. yeah uh, I, I think I know what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> I guess you, when you're doing it you're not quite sure but but there is I mean what is science science is 
trying to think clearly about whatever, whatever it is you're talking about or investigating. It, and so if you take a larger step back and you say, well, what are all of us on earth trying to do? We're trying to be less stupid, right? Right. right? So everything you look at, you look at in a way of, well, I wonder if it really works that way. Well, uh, maybe it works this way. And that turns out that that sort of uh, knee-jerk response to one's environment basically is true for everybody. So we should take down the barriers of why one, one group of people uh, talk to another and they usually build that barrier by using jargon and, and phrase, phraseology that just isn't common to the next person. But if you try to take that down, everybody can see what we're talking about here and then things can move forward. So in a way, that's what I try to do in the book is just talk it through in plain English and uh, hope it worked. <laughs> I, it does because I, we get such great characters and one of my favorite characters is, is Roger Sperry. So. Mm -hmm. I, you you met this man he was already a legend when you met him and he took to you so talk about that uh that mentorship that you felt and that became you know collaboration and friendship oh yeah it, um so f so he was my mentor and i was with him for five years uh was my time at caltech and i think uh, we spoke probably two hours a day five days a week uh, we were just very close, and I would go test the patients. Um, many times he would be there, but many times he w wouldn't be. And I'd come back and give a full reporting of each session. He would take copious notes about it. And, of course, then what happens over that length of time, you talk about everything. And so we were, it was a very close uh, relationship. And uh, one of the things that I came away with is the way he worked, the way his mind worked, <laughs> he seemed to only th see important problems. I mean, he, he didn't know what a bad problem was because he never had a thought about them. He was very clear at identifying major problems, and and so hopefully I learned some of that from him. And uh, so he was an incredible scientist all the way around. And this uh, leads me to uh, the the question of the question of questions. And so talk about how important questions are in science science in many ways more important than the answers so it's absolutely true uh, one of the th events in the book is that uh, so as I say I've been studying these patients for 50 years and the first 25 years we used to ask this question in one particular way you know uh, uh, what did you see when we would flash things to the patients and they would be distributed in their visual field and there was an answer we were always looking for, and, and we got that answer, you know, that was, that, that was the deal. And 25 years later, we finally think of a different way to ask that question. And because and we would get each hemisphere to do something independently and point to different answers, and, and the patient is doing this. And we had, took us 25 years to figure out not what did you see, but ask, why did you do that? Because there's a whole half body doing something that the other half really doesn't know about. And yet, is it going to just say that, or is it going to incorporate that other response into its ongoing narrative of the person? And it does, it turns out. And this gave rise to a whole, whole idea about something we call the interpreter and, and uh, has large implications. So, so yes, 
what's the, you know, how you frame the question and ask the next question is hugely important. Well, this book, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to being just a memoir, just about science, but this kind of hybrid of the two, mm -hmm. um, this helps us interpret what is science. You, you essentially point to the importance of stories in science. Right. Stories, institutions, uh, all these layers of things that go on that are over and above uh, a precipitating idea or insight. I mean, it's it. Th that's just such a small part of it, mm -hmm. and it's this whole social structure that is involved in science. And I, you know, I just keep coming back to that. But I really think that's that's a serious point to communicate. The individual stories of these subjects are really fascinating. So let's talk just a little bit about how you developed how you proceeded from your very first discovery of, of the left-right brain split. And one of the things I think that must have been challenging is that this is like, I think this is uh, the Fred, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers of science <laughs> because everything is backwards and in high heel. Yes, yeah. Well, look, here is the, here's the launch pad. You discover one afternoon when we tested our first patient after the surgery, that the left brain didn't know anything about what was going on in the right brain and vice versa, right? What did that mean? That meant a surgical act could come in and take one mind and make two in an afternoon, right? And so all of a sudden the notions that the mind is something separate from the brain made no sense. It means the mind and understanding it is rooted in understanding the brain as well. Because if you can start to uh, carefully uh, uh, note and study people with different kinds of brain lesions and see these different aspects of the mental system fragment in a way, you can say, well, okay, this is something we can begin to understand in a scientific terminology. and that's pretty exciting. And, and I think people got their legs with this kind of observation. And, and that's why it, be, it really became a, such a big finding in neuroscience. Excuse me. So, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's the, the juice of the whole experience right there. And one of the things you know, too, is that we make a major discovery, such as yours, and then it just gets layers and layers and layers of qualifications and, and yeah. new discoveries piled up on top of it. And it somewhat obscures the, the, and diffuses the original discovery. And I think that's a really interesting notion of, of science itself again, in that these discoveries get uh, muddled by science. Science kind of messes with itself. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, as my colleague Joe Bogan used to say, someone develops a great idea and a, makes a terrific finding, and then there's 30 years of stuff, people piling stuff on top of All it. Right. And then you try to go in and find the essence again and bring it out and say, no, this is the fundamental. So yes, that's a huge problem in, in science. And people keep abstracting out and wanting use a particular finding for their different kind of models and they start piling all these models on it and you forget what the fundamental observation was. Absolutely, it drives me crazy. 
So, so you got to bring it back home and just say, so in, in the book, there were, there were uh, assaults on the basic finding of, uh, of the split brain. And I just made sure that uh, we spent the time to, to listen to the challenge and then do an experiment to test it, to see whether there was any truth to it. And uh, there weren't. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't dynamic changes going on. Uh, following this surgery. Uh, for example, uh, some of the patients, years after their surgery, the, the speechless right hemisphere, the speechless right hemisphere, uh, could develop the skill of saying simple words. Now, that's a change. That's so fascinating, too. Boy, it's, that's it's, amazing when it's you very, write about that. Oh, it's very, it's very interesting. And... Uh, so there are these changes, and then, and then the other thing that, if you really became an aficionado of the patients, which I can swear to since I tested every one of them, <laughs> uh, is how each hemisphere learns to cue the other. I love this idea of mental cueing. Yeah, yeah. talk about that because that's one of the most interesting aspects. It's like they're, you describe it as being like they're cheating on a math test. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, so, for for the so for the listener to to get the idea, imagine yourself being tethered to your friend, right? Your 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 arms are tied together and you're standing kind of off to the side to him. But everything he does, uh, you do or she does, you do what have you, right? Mm -hmm. So pretty soon, I mean, probably within a few hours, you two are going to learn how to cooperate. <laughs> so, well, if you're doing one thing, uh, you're going to let the other person do it, so you're going to inhibit your response if you were thinking about something else. In that situation, there are two minds, obviously. There's two people, two minds. Now, just think of that, uh, how, how subtle that would become if the two minds are in the same skull and they're really tied into the same body. How can one cue the other as to what a goal might be that it has versus the, a different goal the other one has. So we got very good at spotting how the patients would be kind of cheating on us, right, to communicate what, and just because they wanted to, they wanted to satisfy the goal of the experimenter. So they, you know, one side knew something, the other side knew something, and we know they couldn't really compare, but how could they begin to cheat to look like they could, and so forth and so on. So in that, you learn this general thing that that is true in, in neurologic patients and, and, and then you generalize it to normals, how we're constantly cueing ourselves, self-cueing ourselves to get the goal done that all these separate systems in our brain that we have uh, uh, know about. But they, in concert, they don't know about it, so they have to exchange some kind of communication system to get the whole story out. And well, there's, then there's lots. I, I could go on for four days on that, but I won't. Well, I think one of the outcomes of our, the, your first discovery of the split mind is to that now we're coming to a vision of the mind as being not just split into two, but into all these different subsystems that right. are all kind of competing for attention. Right. And I think that uh, to see that kind of uh, the way one discovery leads to another is one of the real themes of this book that we have to have one bit of uh, knowledge once there's a chink made in our knowledge 
you, it just keeps crumbling down further. It's, it's you know, I think that uh, people have to live with a problem and a topic a long time. And they're constantly ruminating about it, thinking about it. They go outside and play with the kids, go to the restaurant, but they always come back to, well, you know, why did Joe do that in that experiment? And so it's that sort of uh, closeness and attention to a problem that allows you to find these additional insights that that in fact pour out of studying these patients. And it's a very, you, you, you can't do this in a flyby. You know, you've, you've got to live with the problem so you, you, can gain, you can begin to gain further insights. Well, I, I love your visions of the, the people you work with. So uh, take us through some of your, your years at, at uh, Caltech when you were at, right after your first discovery because you made, you made so many friends then and all those formative years and all those formative people around you really helped guide you through the science and the society of science. That's what, again and again, we see that um, it's not just the work in the labs, but it's the work outside the labs that makes a difference too. Well, what, so Caltech was such a special place. Uh, they encouraged you to do whatever you wanted to do. So I had at the time a uh, political interest. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was a uh, uh, feeling that the uh, liberal uh, stance of a normal academic institution, which is always liberal, needed a little uh, uh, bolus of a conservative thought. <laughs> and I had a part-time job uh, to help make ends meet as running the Graduate Student Center at Caltech, and we could bring in speakers and stuff like that. So. Uh, Actually, through a, a, another avenue, I decided we should get uh, William F. Buckley to come to Caltech and give a talk because we, we were having Robert Kennedy and we were having this and that. Let's mix it up here a little bit. <laughs> so I rented the Monrovia uh, Auditorium, City Auditorium, and by God, if you know, three or four hundred people didn't buy tickets to come, and in th that was born a friendship, and everybody was all for it. People from Caltech came, and it was it, it was a kick. And uh, so then I started talking to Buckley and uh, get, getting to know him, and we became lifelong friends. And I said, "Why don't we do a debate series? Well, let's let's have a let's debate the presidency, the Supreme Court, and the Congress, and we'll get a liberal and a conservative, and we'll we'll do this." He said, "Well, that's fine." I said, "So why don't we start off with uh, you debating Steve Allen on John F. Kennedy's foreign policy?" And I'll rent the Hollywood Palladium. <laughs> the Palladium? The Hollywood Palladium. 3,000 really? seat joint, you know, in Hollywood. Nothing to do with Pasadena. So anyway, long story short, Steve Allen agreed. It turns out to have been a fabulous guy. He came visit us at Caltech several times, bring us, brought his whole family over, take him through the labs. And years, and after that, he helped me on any number of projects. And, and as I said, Bill, so, Anyway, I did this, and we put it on, and 3,000 people showed up, and uh, and fun things happened, like uh, sitting in the front row was Groucho Marx at the debate, and so Buckley spots him in the front row, and during the debate looks at Allen and says, let's face it, uh, John F. Kennedy's foreign policy might as well have been written by the, Gra the Marx brothers, <laughs> at which point Groucho pops up, you know, does his cigar thing, 
does a little promenade and place goes wild and you know and it was just a ton of fun and, and so I look and then we did two more in, in Pasadena and uh, on other topics and other people but what it taught me was um, opposing views in a civilized discourse can produce a lot and I that was it for me on politics. I got out of that, but I took that model into the field and over the years had these very special meetings and what came, came to be known as cognitive neuroscience. I would get psychologists who really didn't care how the brain did it. They were just trying to you know, oper figure out the operating rules uh, at the psychological level and brain scientists who uh, wanted to find out mechanisms, you know, cellular network mechanisms and what happened was that uh, the, the psychologists were full of theory and the neuroscientists were full of data and didn't have a lot of theory. So we, we put those together. A friend of mine, uh, this is after I moved back east, uh, and a friend of mine, George Miller, a very famous psychologist, we put together this field and, and uh, put together these meetings and it took off because of that marriage of different points of views guiding people into yet another understanding and I, I remain a fan of uh, of this kind of uh, discourse it, it appeals to I'm a little bit of a naysayer so if I'm in a room where everybody thinks one way I kind of try to think the other way and vice versa and so if you just put them both in the you know <laughs> so you don't have to do the work you can just learn <laughs> just get two other guys to be at each other's head and then you can learn something by listening to them so so we have you to thank for firing line. Yeah, firing line. <laughs> firing line was uh, uh, a long story, but I I I arranged for three or four shows uh, that Buckley had. He had Leon Festinger on with B.F. Skinner and David Premack, the great psychologist, uh, with Nate Azrin and. Uh, and then once I was on the show, because uh, I had taken an interest in uh, drug legalization, and Buckley invited me on to uh, to be interviewed by him on, on the issue, and I said, you know, I don't do television. And he says, don't worry. If it's going badly, I'll take a fall. <laughs> 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 so, you know, it was the kind of guy he was. He was very funny. And, uh, but anyway, so that... That was the unlikely thing where you, working in the world of academics and science, was actually influencing a political theater. And, of course, the opposite was true with the kinds of questions you'd get from these guys back to your lab. So that, that's the, I can't emphasize enough, that, that's what makes it all fun. You, we don't live in isolation in the academic world. We get out. You did a lot of really important work with George Miller. So talk a little bit more about him. I wasn't you guys started the journal, right? George George Miller was the dean of really American psychology, and he was at Rockefeller University when I got to know him. And I was at Cornell Medical School right across the street. And uh, uh, he and I uh, first met and took a liking to each other, and then over the course of two or three years. Uh, really launched this idea of cognitive neuroscience and uh, he, he you know he would to give you an example one of the things that encouraged him was uh, I said George look let's go 
do a uh, let's come do grand rounds with us. Let me show you the neurologic patients because he was a pure psychologist and really had never seen an amnestic patient or a phasic patient or a patient with an attentional disorder and and uh, so we do ran rounds in the hospital and he and we get done and he says you know it's so interesting uh, he said in psychology in order to figure out how the the mind works we try to break it we try to get you to go fast we try to make you have errors and we try to analyze those errors so we figure out how how the mind works it's just like you can't figure out how a TV works if it works. You have to make it flutter and then you can figure out, oh, this must be how the thing works, right? He says with neurologic patients, you, they're just sitting there and this uh, deficit they might have is just kind of pouring out of them or not pouring out of them when it should be, right? And it's just there. You don't have to go searching for it. It's a gold mine it, waiting to be discovered. A total gold mine. And he just got it like that. And so uh, all of a sudden, with, with armed with his uh, prestige in the field and, and uh, you know, the, the work that a lot of us were doing, uh, it, just, it just took off. And uh, some, a couple foundations saw it and they launched us and then we started the journal and then we started these summer training camps and so forth. So. Well, talk about the other aspect of this, too, is your, your relationship with all these great patients. And I, I think in particular, um, the woman we see swimming across the pool in one of your videos. Yes. She proves to be really important to you. Yes. She, she was, uh, that was case NG. And she uh, w was the second patient uh, operated on in the first California series. And uh, we, t we would take pictures of her showing how utterly uh, invisible it was to think that she had had a major surgery because everything's normal. You talk, walk, swim, play the piano. Uh, these split brain effects are only uh, detected with special testing that we could do in, in a laboratory situation. And you would see the fact that, well, actually, that's all a cover story because what's happening in the left brain really isn't known by the right, so forth. And so uh, she became a, uh, a major player and studied her for you know five or six years. And then she was studied, and I went back east, and then other people in Sperry's lab came in and studied her a long time as well. Very, very important patient in the neurologic history. And I think, too, uh, just the, for me as a reader, the way that you uh, weave in your own story, um, meeting your wife, uh, getting married. There's a, 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 a really sweet photo of you just before you got married and you were with your the priest and, and the, another man. So talk about that, that photo and you know ex, as a just as a human being going back and finding these photos and putting them in your book. Well uh, what I really realized <laughs> in finding photos for the book was what a poor historian I was that, uh, that there were so many pictures I wanted to find and say oh I, we could we could put that one in there that depicts this <laughs> I never took a picture of it so it, we we uh, my wife and I f pulled together a bunch of photos and we went through and edited them and tried to get great get, get some that that captured the the special times we had you talk also too about premac who is another you know great mind and yeah. so 
discuss his the way you work with him. David Premack, uh, uh, I met when I took my first job here at UC Santa Barbara, but before I left to go back east, and he was a a giant as a young man in psychology. He had the major theory of motivation. Uh, and then when I was getting to know him here, he was going to try and see if a chimp could learn a, um, what he called a meta language, uh, a symbolic system that you would say is uh, ca uh, capable of uh, communicating through symbols uh, in, a, in, a, in a language kind of way. And he had this chimp, Sarah, who uh, uh, was housed here at Santa Barbara, and that every day they would be jumping around on the lawn together, and then the formal testing would go on in the lab, of course. And he made a lot of progress and established a meta-language system that, in fact, worked. And he, uh, Premack himself, is uh, a creative uh, genius. Uh, he, uh, he thinks of things that no one else thinks of. I mean, he, he, if, if there's a scale where there's a social story, uh, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a distribution out in the end where someone just pops up with insights. <laughs> he's one of them. And he's just a, he's a terrific uh, scientist. Uh, uh, and he moved to Pennsylvania. And then we started studying. Uh, the idea was to take what a chimp could do and say, okay, can a human patient uh, who has deeply aphasic, who doesn't seem to be in communication because of left hemisphere damage, really meaningful communication with the world, could they learn to use this chimp system to begin to communicate? And we, we made a little progress on it before we went different ways but the idea was to borrow the insights learned from his experimental work in the chimp apply it to the clinical case to help in a rehab uh, sort of way and it was uh, it was quite an experience well he went on to develop a uh, theory of mind which is the, probably the biggest idea in psychology in the last 30 years that uh, there's a question of uh, you know it's, it's sort of waking up and realizing that what of you, what, do, what do we humans do all the time? We're always thinking about others. We're always thinking about their intentions with respect to us. We are not sitting there thinking about how to remember a phone number or you know all these other cognitive strategies people use. He says, no, no, no. we are social animals and we're, we're constantly computing on the mental state of others. How does that work? And he, he came up with this brilliant paper, and, and it's, it's just a classic. Uh, one of the things that you talk about, too, is that the way that the different halves of the mind communicate. We talked a little bit about cueing, but also emotions seem to, to communicate, too. And there's a, a great, you have a, a great example of uh, somebody of using a racy picture. Yeah. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> to, but you, you, you had encountered the problem. You had to like step back too. Yeah, yeah. It was well. The scene was uh, it was this one of these scenes is very funny. So we were trying to get to see if the right hemisphere, which in the split brain patient, which cannot speak, could somehow maybe we could force it or we could see whether 
some emotional response might spread over to the left speaking hemisphere. So what we did was uh, we, we were flashing pictures to the right hemisphere like spoons and apples and everything and suddenly we threw in a picture of a pinup girl, a, a nude. And uh, so we did this and it's, it's one of the film videos there. What did you see? You say to the patient. The patient said nothing. And then she started to laugh and was spreading across and didn't chuckle. And, and I said, what are you laughing about? And she says, oh, uh, this funny machine you got here, you know, and so forth. And uh, so there was the right hemisphere. It was finding the picture humorous for whatever reason. And it, because the chuckles is occurring in the same body that where the left hemisphere is, it can certainly observe that it's laughing. So it's got to make up a story uh, that why I'm <laughs> laughing. And they got a funny machine there. So we showed that time and time again, uh, uh, how, how that kind of thing works. And so that, what is that? Well, that's the deeper point is that we are sometimes, you know, t the example I like is sometimes you go to bed and you're feeling great and you wake up in the morning and maybe you're annoyed or you're irritated or the, or the reverse, doesn't matter. You know, you go to bed annoyed and you wake up fine. So these are different modules in your brain, you know, doing their magic on setting your emotional tone, but then the cognitive system's gotta come in and make sense out of it. And so you make up a story consistent with your mood. And when the, with the whole, the levers are being pushed by this other <laughs> system down there who, that normally controls these different mood states through, through secretion of different kinds of neurotransmitters and different circuits and blah, 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 you know, so. Well, when you showed that same thing to a WJ, he had yeah. no reaction. Yeah, right. No, he's <laughs> and you were kind of worried about your own theory. That's right. Well, I showed, I showed it to his right. It was, it was nothing, just zero response. And so I was really depressed. And uh, so I, I uh, said, wait a minute, I better just check this out. So I showed the picture to his left speaking hemisphere. And uh, he said, he paused and he says, is that the kind of, co-eds you have at Caltech, <laughs> deadpan, <laughs> and so I said, okay, 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 so he's just not going to react to this stuff. Now, uh, you, you were talking about Leo Festinger before, yeah. and one of the things he's known for is the uh, discovery of cognitive dissonance, and yeah. this is uh, something that you, the left right brain split is actually you know in many ways exempt the perfect exemplar of so talk about uh, working with Leo Leon Leon uh, the brightest humans I've ever known uh, and of course he had this famous theory of cognitive dissonance and I was trying to say on several occasions say well you know this is a perfect uh, situation for what may be going on split brains where there's two diff different beliefs and they're in conflict and how they get resolved and and all I could get out of Leon was I could be <laughs> <laughs> because our our friendship was one of these amazing things where and we had lunch every day I mean every week for 20 years I mean wherever we were we we found a place to get together and have lunch and uh and we talked about everything but what I did in the lab and what he did in the lab. 
I mean, there was the, Well, that's so interesting because... <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like you want time out, you know, and, uh -huh. but you want your mind working. And same with him. And so we talk about trivia. We talk about ideas in the culture. We talk about someone else's stuff. But the nature of the, of the discourse was totally beyond what our individual uh, interests were. And that was what made it so fantastic, to tell you the truth. You spent quite a bit of time in Italy. We, f we spent time in uh, once, so he, he became interested in um, well, he, a, a, a thing of tremendous interest, uh, early history and archaeology. Mm -hmm. And uh, we received funding from a, a foundation for some travel, and we wanted to go to this, actually the south of France, where we uh, wanted to see uh, how uh, lithic, technologists made their stone axes and so there we were <laughs> climbing into the hills of the south of France meeting this guy this famous French lithic technologist Jacques Tissier and uh, we tried to make one and we were getting nowhere and so uh, then Tissier said something to us he says just points he says no hit the rock right here and he points to the rock and we hit it exactly where he said and bingo we made our first uh, 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 rock uh, our tool after the, this experience so we saw oh that was the, the impact of language development must have had a huge impact on the development of finer finer tools and the, the appearance of language and the appearance of finer tools correlates now whether it's the actual thing of course you can't tell but uh, anyway, it was those kind of, we, then we went off to the Negev and uh, Israel, and uh, it, we just had way too much fun. <laughs> and I would, be, I would bring him, I, I, I held a meeting in uh, Morea uh, on one of my meetings I was talking about, and this was an all-star cast of about 10 people, including Francis Crick and Leon, a guy named Duncan Luce, Gary Lynch, uh, Jeff Hinton, Corey Goodman. These are all well-known established places. And we were talking about the biologic basis of memory. And Leon not, did not know anything about the biological basis of memory in, in terms of had he ever studied it in his life. But he has a mind like a vice. And if you start with a supposition and then you go into your talk and you trip up on your own supposition, his hands up and calls you on it, right? So he became, uh, he, be, he endeared himself actually to the various neuroscientists that would come up to other meetings because he had just nothing slipped by him, nothing. And uh, so that was, a, that was an exciting friendship to have. You know, one of the things you talk about, sets of experiments you did that I thought was really fascinating was the work with uh, the left and right brain awareness of the body that yeah. we know where our arms are, but not our hands. Yeah. And that is just, it's yeah. yet another mind-blowing thing. To, so talk about that discovery and, work, and that work. Well, there's, there's uh, ana a basic anatomy that each hemisphere represents, uh, has the capacity to control the proximal muscles of the arms, but not the distal muscle of the fingers. And the afferent, the, the reporting back that you've moved that also is, has this lateralized distribution for the hands, but not so much for the, 
for the, the, the medial part of the body. And because of that, you can demonstrate all, ki all kinds of strange uh, phenomenon in a patient that has their hemisphere disconnected. What you also may be referring to is the, when, when I moved to New York and became involved in testing neurologic patients, there's this uh, syndrome uh, called extinction where there's usually a, a right-sided lesion. And what that means is that when you look at something, uh, uh, you can't see or you deny anything was presented to the left of where you're looking and everything to the right is normally processed. And so you, if you showed an apple and an orange, you know, have a person look at a dot, show an apple and an orange. If the orange was in the right field, left hemisphere, the person would say, I, you know, I saw the orange. See anything else? No. You sure? Absolutely. Didn't see anything else, right? So, okay, that's, that, so that's called extinction. Now, what is that? And is that information getting into the brain? And is it usable at some subconscious level? And, you, and can we be clever about detecting that? So it's not just that it's not seen. It's getting into one of the layers of the brain, but it can't go up to the conscious layer. That was the idea. So uh, uh, Joe Ledoux and, and Bruce Volpe uh, were working with me at the time at Cornell. And we did this experiment where you could show that if you put the apple and the orange up there and the patient would say, I didn't see any, I mean, I saw just the one thing. If you said now, okay, just say whether they're same or different. It, are the two pictures the same? So you have apple, apple, or apple, orange, and, and so forth. They were fine. They got it. And so you knew then that somewhere at some level of the brain, the information was getting in, they were cross-comparing, and they could make a decision about it. But the, the, still the conscious system talking had no insight into all this. And that kind of, for a lot of us, gave rise to the notion and the, with great clarity. And well, of course, 99.9% .9 of everything we do is going on unconsciously. I mean, every, every, from phrasing a sentence to moving your hand to scratching your face, we don't know what's going on. We just, it just happens. <laughs> Right, and and so there's this little teeny, teeny, teeny little bit of thing we call conscious experience, and we think it's the whole show. No, it's not the whole show. It's a very teeny part of the show. Well, this kind of this is why the the old saw that you only use ten percent of your brain is is such a yeah. misnomer. Yeah. Ninety percent of your brain is making sure you don't trip over your own shoelace. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, that's right. And, and you really need that. You, <laughs> you need that much consciousness because that's a lot of data to be pulling in and yeah. processing and moving stuff around. Yeah, you you, you can't possibly ch channel it into a a one room clearinghouse. I mean, it's it's all going on locally, distributed. And that and that's a whole other story. But uh, yes. Now, you write that peak experiences in our life, so are most are highly personal. So I'd like you to talk. about about your peak experience and how it changed you in the moment and how you it's still changing you now. Well, I, I um, there are experiences that just are the pegs at, uh, uh, of how you remember your life, right? And How so you write your own story. How you write your own story. You just remember some things really clearly. <laughs> 
And one of them, obviously, is this discovery uh, in that afternoon at Caltech when, whoa, there's two minds here now, that kind of thing. And that, it hooks you so much that you stay with it the rest of your life, trying to figure out more and more about it and what it really means. And <laughs> they're coming for me. <laughs> is, it, is it black with a UN insignia? No insignia, that's even more disturbing. Yes, that's right. <laughs> it's probably Rob Lowe going home or something. <laughs> uh, so, and, and then there, there are, of course, all, all the, uh, the personal experiences, and there's obviously some negative ones in there along with the, the positive ones, but uh, I, I think, I mean, it's, I guess it's not particularly unique that Memories that have a high emotional content to them are the ones that pop up as you go to search your your recall uh, things you want uh, to remember, and, and they, these things pop up. And so I don't think there's any great mystery to it, to tell you the truth. You came back to UCSB in 2005, and uh, before that, you found yourself involved in some uh, political wrangling with regards to stem cells. Yes. Yes, that was a big event. Uh, so I w it was 2001, it was just after 9-11, I got a call whether I'd serve on uh, uh, George Bush's uh, Bioethics Council. I got a call from uh, Leon Cass, who uh, was the chairman of the committee. And um, I didn't know him and he had, uh, had a very nice conversation. And I said, but I'm not a bioethicist. I, you know, and he says, you don't have to be. We're talking about bioethical issues, but we want people from all all sorts of uh, professions. So I, d I took it on, and uh, and it was an amazing experience. An extremely well-run organization, lots of diverse opinions. I mean, radically diverse ideas, which, to my mind, made it a, a particularly good bioethics council because it reflected all walks of life, all strongly held beliefs in our society. It wasn't one of these uh, uh, comfortable bioethics committees where everybody sort of has the same view. No, <laughs> it, it, there were a lot of different views. So I found that interesting, it appealed to me. And uh, the, first, the first item up was stem cells and what to think about it. And the, um, and the, Everybody was poo-pooing the council that, oh, they've got a lot of conservatives on this. They're, they're going to, you know, shut this thing down. And that's not what happened. There was a vigorous debate for six months on the council. And in the end, uh, 10 out of the 17 voters uh, said there was no, they didn't have an ethical issue with, uh, with going ahead with uh, stem cells. And the that's a that's a short end of the story the the longer story is fascinating and I tried to tell a little bit in the book but what I also found that uh, kind of surprised me was uh, so I got involved I mean I thought you know geez what do I really know about this and so I learned a lot about stem cells and then I said well what does neuroscience know about this and I realized that the 14-day-old blastocysts is what you, everybody was worried about. Uh, 
doesn't have a brain. There's no nervous system. Mm -hmm. So what are we worried about it for? It's a bunch of cells. And people say, yeah, but it potentially could be uh, a person. So that's, the, that's a religious stance that some people have. And if they have that stance, that's the end of the conversation. I mean, because they know the facts now. They just they buy into the potentiality argument. So then the, the debates were on that point back and forth. And I wrote a, a column for uh, an op-ed piece for the New York Times and uh, where I made my argument for why I thought stem cells were fine. It was on the moral status of the embryo kind of thing. And what I discovered as I thought about it, actually I said, God, I'm becoming an advocate and I don't picture myself that way as being drawn into the debate and everything. I was just trying to state the scientific story. But in stating the scientific story and then seeing others react against it, I go, wait, wait, wait you can't, you, that's a fact. You can't throw that fact away. And so then you get drawn into the, to the kind of the heat of the debate. And so it, it is an, it's going to be an interesting 20 or 30 years here coming up where more and more science is coming in to speak on public policy issues. And it's not just Joe Blow's opinion about it. Look, that's the way it works. And now what are you going to th think about it? And so that, that conflict uh, and that change, because change in, in many of these arguments because there's more and more scientific data to, to contribute to the argument, it's going to change the public discourse in the next few years. Talk about the import of the new uh, generation of imaging devices. So uh, it, it's a uh, two-edged sword in a way. They're, they're getting more and more accurate in depicting the underlying uh, nervous networks. Uh, and it's showing more and more the complexity of those networks in, in the human brain in particular. This is where imaging is having such a Im big impact on human neuroscience. Uh, the problem is though that now there's just more variables that any decent model is going to have to take into account when it tries to figure out how these parts interact. The real deal is will be to have a dynamic model of brain function of how all the parts that have become identified with all these new imaging techniques interact. And that, it, to my mind, requires that neuroscientists are going to have to learn a, a, a more skills to ultimately solve their problem. And what we're doing here at, at UC Santa Barbara is developed a new program where the, the young students uh, not only learn neuroscience, but they learn c control and dynamic systems thinking right out of engineering. They got to see how these, these things can be grasped in their intricate interrelationship and build models of that. So my bet is that in 20 years, 10 years, whatever it is, what an explanation will look like in neuroscience will look, be quite different than what it is today. What it is today is sort of a static descriptions of this goes to there, that goes to there, this does something, that gets sorted out there. It'll be a different vocabulary where you're talking about controllability of the parts and all kinds of things like that. So it's an exciting time. It's, it's, it, it's almost the case in neuroscience since our 
ignorance is so vast that when new waves of capacity come through, there's an excitement that, well, maybe, maybe we'll get closer with this one. And we are inching closer, but it's just, it's hard. It's, it's not, this is not making apple pie, you know. <laughs> this is a hard job. And, uh, and so I, I, I think, but I think there's great things ahead, and I really do. I've been speaking with Dr. Michael Xanaga. His new book is Tales from Both Sides of the Brain, A Life in Neuroscience. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Gazanaga. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.